Well, I mean, we're we're looking at like the 100th anniversary of the eugenics conference this year. So, is that a conference itself, or is it invisible? Well, conference? there was the. Is it just the it's anniversary? The, it's the centennial. Conference. There's a conference. There's an anti-eugenics conference on the centennial gotcha. anniversary of the original eugenics conference, where uh, Charles Darwin's son said some really amazing things about how we needed to exterminate people to prevent the collapse of the species. Mm. Um, you guys know about the origin of species well yeah i'm telling you about the collapse i'm, I'm doing the set i'm doing part two dad this I mean, one, like, i'm doing part two i feel like the the original american fail son is actually like darwin's son i'd be i'd die on that hill to the death panel to support the show and get access to the second weekly episode just for patrons become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you want to help us out a little bit more you can always share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore so if you take a look at where we're at right now with covid depending on what your assumptions and priorities are and let's be honest what your class position is you might have a very different picture of the pandemic right now on one hand for 30 days there have been over a thousand deaths a day for the past week we've had two thousand deaths a day this is according to the new york times tracker it's a great american accomplishment that we're back up to two thousand deaths a day i'm being sarcastic but you know Transmission might not be rocketing upward right now at a nearly vertical angle anymore, but it's really high. And the end of the pandemic is clearly, I think, nowhere in sight. But the actions of the Biden administration and the loosening of NPIs over the summer, which have really fueled this latest wave, aren't being rolled back, right? We're not seeing some sort of return to masking mandates, a return to real NPI policies or temporary shutdowns or, you know, forcing closures of non-essential businesses. Instead, we're seeing, you know, these policies that are not really pursuing any meaningful mitigation measures. So it's it's this clash of priorities, right? And and I think it's you know, the priority of the Biden administration has been way more focused on the managing of, of messaging. You know, as Biden said in some truly bizarre opening remarks for the virtual COVID-19 global summit this week, quote, we're not going to solve this crisis with half measures or middle of the road ambitions. We need to go big. So if you listen to what we the need Biden three quarters of the road ambitions, not middle. <laughs> right. You've been standing in the middle of the road, but what you but the middle of the road, the cars don't drive on. Like what you need to do is just take one or two paces to the left and then be run over by the car. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So if you listen to what the Biden administration says that it's doing, then this is, quote, an all hands on deck crisis. But that's not actually what's happening. And it's we're talking about the summit, I think, for a little bit to start us off because the political imaginary of the COVID pandemic has always been warped and shaped by an artificially scarce conception of what is politically and socially possible. But now more than ever, the attention on the end of the pandemic and the messaging that Biden's using to make that our reality, you know, 
it's becoming ironic in a very tragic way because he's saying we have to do everything we can. And then this huge at this huge global, you know, COVID summit in conjunction with the UN General Assembly, the set is horrific looking. It looks like if like, you know, MK Ultra designed the CIA version of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Right. Which, but- to be fair, they probably did at some point. Just- <laughs> True. <laughs> like, True. There's a 30 percent chance they did that. I think maybe they made Mr. Rogers. Mm. You never know. Oh, whoa, you know whoa, it- whoa, whoa, whoa. Searching whoa, whoa. for the truth. A fellow here, Pittsburgh. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> MK Ultra. Well, hey, look, anything's you know, possible. I don't know. And at this, this summit called ending the pandemic and building back better. Right. The propositions and the targets and the goals and the initiatives that are being proposed. Right. These are not taking us towards ending the pandemic. They're taking us towards, you know, the living with the virus strategy. Yeah. This this sort of reminds me of one of the criticisms of the profusion of like social policy in the United States in the 1960s, which is, you know, you had, you know, all of this money poured into like anti-poverty initiatives. And, you know, the goal when you like read the uh, speech sort of signing the act uh, or like the the preamble of the legislation is always like, you know, the purpose of this is to like eradicate poverty. But when you don't want to deal with the contradictions that produce like poverty in the first place, what you then do is illustrate uh, through your actions that quote unquote doing all we can, the government <laughs> doing all it can, can't solve the problem, which I think for even like center left or center center you know, like liberals, uh, that's a terrible uh, place to put yourself. But the reason that Biden's there is there is one sort of overriding set of things that's that's very difficult for him to uh, for the administration to like default on, which is its commitment to people like Albert Borla. Um, and and I think that like you, it it makes. It makes more sense when you actually look at the way that they're they have this you know thing like we have this responsibility, you know, to like not have half measures. And then you actually look at each of the targets that they've set. And when you get into like the back of the envelope on them, it's like, how is this not a half measure? Right. Um, right. And it's easier to understand that if you think about like, well, what are the constraints on what the full measures can actually be? Um, but I think it's like worth thinking about too. This vaccine summit or this this like COVID summit is happening a couple months in advance of this thing that the WHO is going to be having in in November, yeah. which is this new pan- global pandemic treaty, which is an attempt to sort of reset the table on really what like global responsibilities are and it's i think no it's no secret that uh, sort of at the global level the perspective on what the united states is doing or not doing to like use its sort of global hegemon type power to end the pandemic is you know pretty dim uh, I, I people unsurprisingly do not think that uh, I mean, there, there was like very few. You basically had to like find the absolute simps <laughs> to find a positive take on the summit. It's right. pretty uniformly negative. Um, and the reasons why will become apparent momentarily. Yeah. So let's talk about the summit first, because I think later we're going to talk about the whole booster shot conversation. Right. Yeah, the other side of the coin. <laughs> we're in yeah, the other side of the coin very prominently, uh, just to just to make sure that's stated from the top is that in the dead of night, uh, the C- <laughs> literally the CDC uh, went against the recommendations of uh, the panel to issue some of its uh, to, to change some of its booster 
investor recommendations. So we'll we'll get to that. But I think, I mean, I think the interesting thing about this, the you know, the other major sort of like pandemic news of the of the week, basically <laughs> this uh, this big uh, global vaccine summit. The the ridiculous thing to me about this is when you actually look at what they're talking about and proposing one. Yeah, it does. There are elements that just align with, uh, either align with or sort of just appear to be almost like ceremonial declarations, uh, that will (laughs) appear to then have been fulfilled as though by the Biden administration, when the WHO meets later this fall to work out the details of this pandemic treaty, which is, has been, which is a whole other conversation that I think maybe we can uh, talk about at more length in the future because it gets into this whole this this whole there's a whole bunch of sort of like issues and intrigue around it uh, basically and, and issues with it but in a lot of ways other than that though the the announcements made this week at the uh, global pandemic summit with this you know these these big ambitions of this is not a middle of the road problem we're gonna <laughs> you know we have to go no half measures etc we have to go all the way full measures etc I mean, I just feel like I have deja vu because it just feels like, remember when we uh, talked about their whole Build Back Better World proposal? Mm -hmm. It literally just seems like Build Back Better World 2. Like as though every three or four months they're going to get up and do a a big proclamation that like, okay, one, uh, the big top line thing, which then gets repeated, I think by far the most in... Uh, media accounts of this is like, okay, now we have a fresh batch of uh, donations of uh, vaccine doses. So we're going to make, you know, they have now, I think, what is it, a contract for 500 million doses from yeah, Pfizer? Yeah, purch- a purchase order. Yeah. So they get that sort of like press hit of even though even though they're active actively, as we've uh, been talking about recently, and as B and I wrote a piece uh, for the new inquiry about, like, even though they've been slow walking the trips waiver proposal, even though they've basically been, you know, functionally obstructing, uh, along with other wealthy nations, but even though basically the Biden administration has been functionally doing everything it can to like slow walk any of the trips waiver agreements, any of the possibility of like, actually, reducing vaccine apartheid by like making it possible for other countries to just start producing stuff like Pfizer's vaccine, et cetera. Um, they get, you know, to, to like look good for the moment, basically by, by saying like, aren't, aren't we beneficent? Like, look at us donating this amount of doses. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it- it's like the in the White House's own breakdown of what the COVID summit is, there's this hilarious sentence which like leads into the segment of the sort of top line sheet that's just like, here are the like most important things from the summit. Uh, the section called Vaccinating the World is preceded by this absolutely wild sentence that I'm about to read. Quote, during his remarks, the president called the world to action and announced several bold new U.S. commitments to accelerate progress towards these targets, including, and it goes through, you know, donating half a billion COVID vaccines, we're going to get shots into arms, we're going to put money into USAID, we're going to expand local production, regional capacity, they, you know, transparency, blah, blah, blah. At the very end, it has support for a COVID-19 trips waiver. But the support support (laughs) right and and that says quote extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures again Mm -hmm. calling upon you know the actual situation the united states supports a waiver of intellectual property protections in the wto trips agreement for covid19 vaccines in service of ending this pandemic period so like you know they put all of this work into getting the the set together and the speech together and rolling this out and rolling it out in the press right to focus on this commitment of 
500 million vaccines, which they've been framing as, of course, like a half a billion, because that sounds much bigger than 500 million. Right. And, you know, and yet the thing that would do the most, the quickest to like actually address vaccine equity, right? Like that gets relegated to the bottom. They're not talking about trips if they can in press conferences. And it has like completely been buried under this headline of like, you know, additional half billion purchased from Pfizer for donations. You know, it's a charity complex of governance. But it's but it's it's more like here's here's the the thing, though, is is if you read the plan and like the target and then you try to like back out how they get there, it doesn't (laughs) make sense how they get there. True. Unless they have some tool to compel pharmaceutical companies to do something they're not doing. So the fact that it's not really even something he's like willing to talk about, like the in the whole idea is we're going to get there. But like that line about trips is almost like a throwaway. doesn't make a lot of sense. So the you know, obviously, like the 500 million line is, you know, they say that because newspapers love to report big numbers, but they they miss the number one cardinal elementary rule of reporting big numbers, which is that you have to talk about the fucking denominator. And that, that's just like, that's in textbooks on writing. That's just like yeah. a basic thing. Right. But but again, that's like the human mind, I guess, and, and certainly the human mind under conditions of hegemony, like 500 million is going to, like, that's going to be the, the headline. Right. But the whole thing that their, their target is 70% of the world vaccinated by the fourth quarter, by the way, end of the year 2022. <laughs> mm. uh-huh. Okay? So... Like, think about this, like G7 countries, like, why should we, why should we even believe that that is a thing that they're really committed to? G7 countries have only delivered like 14% of the vaccines they promised. So essentially the the 70% uh, 2022 target is the equivalent of Everclear singing, here is the money that I owe you. Um, (laughs) So, so, you know, but, but the thing is, it's not because there's a scarcity of vaccine. If you think about like the number of vaccine doses that we currently have in the world, they could probably uh, and certainly the amount that we'll be able to have by, say, like March, we could easily have 70 uh, percent of the world vaccinated by June. But the problem is pharmaceutical companies have consistently not delivered doses that have been like earmarks for COVAX. And, right. and it's like, again, not surprising why. Um, why would they do that when they could sell them at a higher price to countries when uh, the countries that are, are willing to pay for, for boosters, which we'll get into later. But like, how can you meet, meet the coverage target and do boosters, which the Biden administration says it wants to do without doing something like compelling tech transfer? Um, right. if, if manufacturers are going to be able to like set not only the price, but the supply and the distribution of these things. Um, you can't do even the modest thing that Biden is saying is the United States' uh, 2022 target, which, again, is already kind of like ridiculously um, unreasonable. So, like, the, the point that I'm making is like a really, really basic back of the envelope would suggest that to say that the United States is even committed to 70 percent global vaccination without saying we're also committed to like using the power that the federal government has to compel uh, tech transfer and yeah. to like compel, you know, the sharing of information about how to make these things is to say that you don't actually want that and that you're OK with the, the pandemic continuing, which, by the way, there might be some, you know, 
the trade-offs there might actually, in a geopolitical sense, make sense for the United States. I don't know. You know, there's there's a really cruel imperial sort of logic there. But I, I guess my point is, why should we take the 70% goal seriously unless you're saying, like, the mechanisms of how you're going to get there? Like, 70% might be, like, a good target. I think you could reach it sooner. But unless you're telling me exactly what it is like unless you're be at least able to say why haven't we gotten there yet what is <laughs> yeah. the thing that's the problem and and they don't they they don't they can't say that pharmaceutical companies have been the key problem yeah well and also i think it's really important to think about this stuff in terms of sort of pandemic time versus i don't know other scales of time because mm-hmm. i think the the best way that i've found i think to relate how ridiculous some of these international commitments are and how specifically the pomp and circumstance around stuff like this covid-19 summit this week uh but also around things like the original build back better world right i think the best way to relate uh the limitations of them is in some ways talking about stuff like the paris climate accords right where everyone kind of when you see these targets like oh we're going to we're going to say by 2030 we're going to cut like this number by 30% or 70% or or whatever or that by 2050 we'll have you know met such and such kind of moderate climate related goal right i think we can kind of understand how that is bullshit but i feel like it's a really important thing to to like underline here how as you know as you mentioned phil q4 2022 like the end of t- the year 2022 is in pandemic time an extremely long time from now Right. I mean, that is like from now a full year plus potentially if they assuming they even hit that, which based on all the I mean, not once have these things hit a target before. Right. I mean, like you first of all, I guess one, you see all of the death and immiseration. You can understand all the death and immiseration that is going to happen uh, between now and then just based on. The, like, if only because of the perpetuation of this fucking vaccine apartheid. Mm-hmm. And two, it's even more, I think, even more troublesome as you see how even we have high vaccination rates in the US, right? And vaccines plus other NPIs do make things better. But the long, like, the more time that passes, the easier it becomes for certain npis to get dropped right and then just like it just it like lessens the overall impact and it gives just more and more time for this to just basically spread totally unchecked right right and there have been i think two billion doses that are promised to quote low and and middle income countries through covax through 2021 and then there's supposed to be you know i think another one billion doses in the first half of 2022 so that's that's three billion doses um, and there are an estimated like 4 billion people that need to be reached. Right. So the, you know, the problem is that like the funding that they've laid out for, uh, how that's going to happen is $3 billion in 2021 and $7 billion for 2022. And it really doesn't sound like that much money Like, it doesn't sound like the right amount of money that you would need to get three billion doses of vaccine delivered and in arms and to get people trained and to get the storage and the shipping. You know, that that 
to me doesn't seem like uh, even with a bunch of, you know, donations from private industry, right? Like you were setting this up to be underfunded from day one. And we're setting this up to be deprioritized in the supply chain. You know, the Biden administration is like making themselves very busy with these vague commitments to the TRIPS agreement. And, and you know, we're going to like, we're going to lead here. Or we're going to try and strive towards that. But, you know, they have not followed through at all on their commitment to having a text-based negotiation or leading that in some way. That's not happening. Yeah, to even that part. Well, right. Yeah. yeah. So like, <laughs> you know, what we're getting instead is like, you know, one sentence gesturing towards a, a promise and a commitment in a theoretical like third universe where like Biden would love to do this. But in the meantime, he's just like keeping it in mind, you know, in the way that America does. Um, you know, we were aware of like the terrible things we do and we just try our best not to. Well, I mean, the, the assumption, though, and I think we, we've we've said this time and time again, which is that like because people can't easily see the blowback effects of the U.S. Like they're, they're not immediately clear the blowback effects to the any sort of domestic audience for this policy. Uh, this is going to be like this is like going to be politically sufficient for him. Right. right. Until because because there will be horrible uh, downstream effects on people's lives um, on, uh, you know, pro probably speaking like international conflict. I mean, the fact is, when you when you're not really making a commitment to aggressively, like get vaccines out there, you're essentially like saying, well, th these places that are already like uh, like in conflict with one another where there's like, uh, you know, uh, political violence, like, yeah, we're, we're OK with that just continuing. And again, there might be reasons why they are. Uh, but uh, that that's like a matter of geopolitics. But but that, there's no like domestic audience for that. So like the fact that they're saying, oh, yeah, 500 million. Oh, you know, that sounds pretty good. You know, it, it, it's it's I think what's funny to me is how the sort of like domestic political economy of like the Trump era on the U.S. is like, you know, global role has, has not necessarily changed at all. It seems it seems kind of similar to me. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out, like one of the you know, one of the reasons for us to uh, critique this domestic reception is it's being very like in the within the United States and U.S. like media, it's being like fetid. Mm -hmm. Right. They're like, you know, not not obviously like un totally uncritically. There are there are, you know, you'll find criticisms here and there. But there's a there are a lot of places that are writing up the uh, COVID-19 summit. And they're saying like, you know, uh, such and such was pledged, such and such was done. Oh, look, isn't this like wonderful? Isn't this nice? Meanwhile, in international media or people who cover like the WHO uh, or stuff in uh, Geneva, for example, it's basically like a blip. It's like this basically didn't exist. Right. This week, you know, it's, or, or it's like kind of a it, it was received almost as it the thing that it was, which is like a big Zoom meeting or whatever. So I feel yeah. like that is important uh, in terms of just like situating what is being uh, sort of presented and what is being advanced on sort of almost like an aesthetic level or something to the like like within the United States. Right. right? And, and I think the thing that's that's the most frustrating to me is reading through their fact sheet and then I went into their more in depth, uh, full breakdown of all of their Build Back Better World 2 points, and I still couldn't find what I was looking for. 
And then I watched the thing and I still couldn't find what I was looking for. And the whole time, all I was looking for was some acknowledgement that there was like a plan for what to do if they ran into trouble trying to like expand technology transfer or, you know, if pharmaceutical companies refuse to do it. Right. And that's not something that's even being discussed largely. And I think it's, you know, as, as Artie and I talk about in our piece for the new inquiry, like it is not um, it would be naive to expect that like pharma would just comply if suddenly like the trips waiver went through. I think it would be incredibly naive to expect that there would not be a fight to enforce it, at least like in some capacity. Right. And I think a lot of that hinges on when the pandemic technically ends or it doesn't end. Right. And I think this sort of vulnerability to the TRIPS waiver and to like any sort of like violation of their IP regime um, for pharmaceutical companies really sort of ends when the state of emergency is over. So I think that there's this sort of there's like mutually beneficial goals that are shared between like the United States government and pharmaceutical companies. Right. And that is like those are primarily economic goals. They're not goals that have like public health metrics or measures or real um, correlations to like the state of the pandemic, right? So it's become incredibly important to sort of appear to be managing the sort of concerns of of the actual population, which is the pandemic itself. I think largely people are concerned with how much death there is. You know, you cannot... Um, you cannot look at the news right now without seeing something about care being rationed, like in Idaho, where they're saying, you know, we're not going to do DNR, like we're everyone's DNR, you know, we're going to do triaging that is, um, you know, I think if it was done under quote unquote normal circumstances, like you would have like people outraged, right? And yet we're in the situation where we're in the pandemic of the unvaccinated. We've dehumanized the people that are dying. You know, we've reinforced the the myth that the only people that are dying are the unvaccinated, which is like increasingly like harder and harder to maintain as a farce, right? Right. And, you know, the, the sort of tragedy of it is that as we move forward, the sort of problems that we will have to mitigate have been directly caused by the refusal to do anything to mitigate community spread in the first place. Right. right? Like, right. and so we're just, we are trying to like head off problems of our own making, right. As we like rush forward with this endless momentum that just absolutely does not correlate with what you need, like in a society to combat like a viral and, respiratory and, pandemic, which actually sort of, I think it relates to a, the second like big set of targets that the administration puts out in this like summit, which is about testing, right? Their their right. target is they want to ensure a minimum of one per 1,000 people are tested per week. I think they mean globally. Uh, or test positivity <laughs> rates are less than 5% uh, per week in all countries. Uh, those are their words. Uh, which, <sighs> to which I would say, like, have we like why would we believe the United States would be able to get this done given what they have done on testing in the United States is do some you know nebulous move to uh you know work with quote unquote work with uh Kroger and <laughs> Amazon and like yeah. uh, a couple other companies to like provide uh, testing strips at cost rather than like again this like uh, ludicrous idea that they're like pursuing like a wartime strategy is so laughable it's like yeah the wartime strategy population yeah it's like (laughs) yes the wartime strategy in which um 
you know, we're going to provide uh, like equipment to the military at cost. Right. <laughs> we're going to no, provide no, equipment actually, to soldiers at cost. No, it's it's much simpler than that, Phil. It's going to be uh, so we're going to have we're going to have these boxes of a bunch of uh, testing kits that you can you can buy, right? And one country can buy some, and uh, then they can kind of distribute it among their uh, population, or you know, sell it to sell it to other countries, and then if those other countries are really interested, then they too can buy maybe quote unquote up the chain can uh, buy boxes of testing equipment from them. And we get to a point where we just end up creating something like, I don't know, uh, a pyramid structure, if you will, <laughs> whereby <laughs> full of wet leggings and half used Abbott, by next now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I think all of this, we, it's interesting, actually, that we haven't even talked about the sort of uh, like securitization part of this at all, which right. is, you know, which makes sense because, you know, in a way, this is not the the summit that happened this week is not being talked about almost at all in these terms in the press. But like a huge component of this overall summit and the overall uh, discourse here is really to or has been. If you look at the main goals of this meeting set or this agenda, for example, they talk really explicitly about creating a uh, health security fund at the World Bank, uh, seeded with $250 million in funding uh, to basically promote the increasing securitization of global public health. Basically. Yeah, yeah, like it, they, they talk about it. Uh, in some of there's been very little press coverage of this, but they talk about it as if this is a proposal to like uh, be able to fund uh, public health resources at a right. global scale. But then when you look at the way that it's actually described by the Biden administration and also like this reflects, um, you know, previous work product that we've seen come out of the WHO. It's so focused on surveilling and, you know, sort of targeted prevention and being able to send in these sort of tactical teams to like test so that you can start to connect, like collect that genetic material that you would need to also produce a, another vaccine very quickly. You know, it's it's based more around this kind of uh, fantasy of like, like global governance competency, right? That there could be some sort of like, you know, Marvel Universe pandemic strike team that would like come down and like contain the virus in well, some capacity. But the idea is also that very explicitly, and you know, this is an idea with long roots, basically um, going back at least to ironically, health security as a concept arises basically as a, in some ways, as sort of like the neoliberal reaction to the WHO in the 70s, at mm -hmm. least. Um, had their big uh, health for all by the year 2000 uh, initiative, which was basically towards the idea that you would work towards an international right to health <laughs> and towards having universal, at least primary care available for like right. basically everyone internationally. We did a great job of that. Which itself would be actually you know, rather than it, obviously for, for a lot of reasons, but just in terms, just in terms of like as a public health principle, but, and also just as a, I don't know, a number of other like moral or whatever the fuck you want to call it principles. But I mean, just to stick with public health basically would be much more effective than having some sort of like worldwide 
uh, like basically national security apparatus, uh, like intelligence agency apparatus, monitoring whether or not there was like a breakout of this or that thing, which obviously, you know, you want some like you want some form of like sharing between countries or whatever to see if stuff is happening. But this is talking about basically like cracking down on or like closing borders between like countries that then become uh, perceived as like a outside threat to nations like the U.S., right? Yeah. And it, and it's really like sort of framed as needing to like establish this sort of leadership that can f- sort of financially target and allocate resources, I, I would presume, according the according to the needs of G7 countries, right, in, right. Um, you know, countries with less GDP. And so you have this this kind of gulf this incredible gulf between what they're proposing right and how it's being reported because it's being reported as a way to um, prevent a pandemic but they're not explaining the you know in the press coverage of this they're not explaining that the means by uh, means of preventing it is surveillance they they sort of take that at face value and run with I think some statements that have been um, from Kamala Harris that we're announcing this this week that sort of frame this more as like, well, we want to make sure that that people have the training and the, the we have the access yeah. to the things that they yeah. need for public health crises. And yeah, we've learned nothing. I mean, we've nothing. learned nothing in the sense that, like, if you look at the countries that have some of the best surveillance capability, uh, you know, just e- using WHO's basic um uh, you know, case definition, surveillance criteria, they have had among the worst out there. It's not like there's like a direct correlation, like better surveillance, worse outcomes. It's just that surveillance is not the reason, like the absence of the idea that like the absence of surveillance is the reason why these countries had such a poor outcome on COVID-19 is so <laughs> fucking laughable. I mean, it's just right. like the, it, it betrays that that the person listening to that will not have had any experience of what has occurred over the last like year. Right. And I mean, to me, I think it was important because it's like in a lot of ways, uh, like, you know, be be mentioned at the very beginning that this the, the whole summit basically is sort of, you know, almost like an international version of doing the conversation of like, quote unquote, we have to live with the virus. Mm-hmm. And I think what that I think it's important to just call out that what that really means, like when when people say like, uh, we'd have to like learn to live with the virus or whatever, much like the it's perfect that it echoes the old like how to like, learn how to live with less or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. But when that is the narrative in the face of both this sort of health, like increased health securitization and this ongoing complete denial of the majority of the world to be able to get vaccines or anything through this ongoing vaccine apartheid, what that ends up being is just this how to put it operation enduring virus or something (laughs) like as opposed to operation enduring freedom it's just like it clearly this is what has been going on but just just to say it like we're going to try within the united states to quote unquote manage the virus within our populations within at least the populations that we actually give a shit about um that much is very clear and then for everyone else fuck them that's what apparently that's what like the border is for or whatever you know we're gonna have this increasingly just i don't know it's just as fucking blood and soil as everything that the trump administration did is all i'm saying right you know the priority is obviously on making sure that the people that keep the economy moving are 
are able to keep moving in their lives. Right. And basically every single political economic decision that we're we're seeing play out in front of us is towards that goal. And they can say all that they want, that they're doing something different or they're not about that or they're really just about saving lives. Right. But how many times do we have to watch them make that decision before we stop believing them? Right. And, you know, they're telling they're, they're not telling us who they are, but they are showing us, I think, over and over again. And maybe this is actually a good moment to move on to boosters too yeah um earlier in the episode already mentioned this very bizarre thing that happened on thursday night where cdc director rochelle walensky issued a statement overturning this uh recommendation from the cdc's own advisory panel and it's sort of just the latest in this back and forth drama very will they won't they on the booster question which has been on the table for several months. But this past week, the FDA weighed in, um, offering basically a recommendation that it should be boosters should be approved for Pfizer recipients, not just based on age or medical vulnerability, but also based on their employment situation. Yeah, I feel like like we like rewind the clock here a little bit, because I think the the whole um like conflict here between the FDA advisory panel and the CDC, like essentially, you know, a lot of people like claim they were like surprised by the CDC, like bucking the advisory panel and and like sort of going gung ho in the boosters. But like, it doesn't seem that surprising if you think about the fact that the Biden administration locked itself into this position yeah. by yeah. having, you know, the head of the FDA, uh, Woodcock coming out and uh, with other these like other officials and basically saying like in August that they were going to authorize boosters before like the FDA had weighed in before the CDC had weighed in. But like so essentially what the Biden administration did was they just like locked in these agencies into a course of action that made it very, very hard for them to like deviate Regardless of like what the evidence was and like so like what they so what the advisory committee ended up like finding is like, oh, actually, uh, there's some problems here. But but like the administration is like uh, for for reasons we can like speculate on uh, later has just like locked itself in. Yeah, I mean, that was what I was going to say. I think in a funny way, the this we, we've you know, we talked about this, the potential of this happening actually uh, yeah. way back when it was announced, because in. a a pretty meaningful way they kind of directly telegraphed basically that something like this might happen where you see like again and obviously this isn't like the first time that this has happened recently but within a specific case like this rather high profile situation with the boosters like the biden administration was in originally for i think essentially one of the things that they wanted to do what they proposed basically was that they wanted explicitly for general population basically boosters to be available uh, starting in like basically starting around now they gave right. a date like right now which everyone kind of understood was coinciding with literally just that would be basically just after these advisory committees were going to meet which set up the obvious question of like okay so if the advisory committee hasn't met yet and they're giving the date in advance what the fuck exactly is going on they here, looked into right? their public health crystal ball and it said <laughs> You know, Albert Borla came to them in the crystal ball and said, 
the FDA will approve it. Well, I mean, it's like it's remarkable what they're willing to be really proactive and uh, and aggressive about. Yeah. It's, not, it's not remarkable. It's actually it's it it tells you a lot. But for example, you know the uh, the uh, workplace vaccination requirements, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for you know businesses over a certain size or whatever, you know those are you know we're we're gonna get around to it actually being enforced. We're gonna be get around to it actually like, kicking in. <laughs> like the time frame is such that basically it's yeah that that basically again you know the longer that you delay these things, it's not like like even if we like let me put it this way. I think, for instance, we'd be happy if, for example, they said like, okay, we're going to do a like, let's let's do a pay people to stay home program. But then if they said like, okay, so that's going to be Q2, like quarter two of 2023, right? (laughs) It's like, what the like, what the fuck are you doing? Whereas this, it's interesting, I think, um, because like I I get the compulsion to say like, you know, you want to you want to immediately try if you really if you're really so ideologically bought in that like the one thing that you can do that the one policy lever that you have is to like just keep tapping the vaccine button right that's a mixed metaphors of levers and buttons but like i get the compulsion then to just keep fucking tapping the button right Mm -hmm. but but that's yeah i i I don't i don't know i i really i don't know how to feel about this because on one hand i'm just kind of like i don't know it's not gonna hurt like what like i'm sure it's not gonna be a problem for a bunch more people to get um boosters it's very clear that even if they didn't do uh booster shots i don't think that any of that excess supply would go where it fucking needs to go no i i but i think that this is like this is the problem which is there's a difference between like running a pandemic policy that's like a good use of the resources you have <laughs> and all of the levers right. that you have. Like the thing is, right. the point is you uh, like in in the world, if, if you're like planning this out, you know, planning this out in a way that makes sense from from like a public health perspective, you don't want to rely too much on any one lever. You want a mix of levers so that you have, I don't know, reserves and can can meet other goals, you know, with uh, with vaccines. But the I think the determination has been that there are all these other levers that we just we cannot touch. If you touch them, you know, your hand uh, melts down uh, into sort of like a goo and uh, you, you know, you, you can't do anything with them. And I think that that's like watching public health departments now at the like the local level try to call off large events is like in in like um, lacrosse county in wisconsin they're like please don't have large events and it's like okay well oktoberfest is going to be happening like tomorrow and yeah you can you can be sure that there's no one coming to the aid of the public health department saying like hey yeah this is actually a good idea and we should like no because there's no like rhetorical support structure or political support structure all the way up the chain for them doing that and so like what you've done is you have like it's good to have multiple levers i think in part because some levers don't work in certain places especially where like vaccine uh hesitancy is like quite high um so you know it would be good to have something else to go to but we don't now and so they've created a world in which is this is the only lever they can tap and like will it do harm I don't think so. Will it do more harm than good, at least on this particular thing? Certainly not. But that doesn't mean it solves the problem. It doesn't right. mean that it solves any problem. What it solves, exactly. it, if it solves any problem, I don't know what you think of this, but like if it solves any problem, it like it seems to do the 
sort of political management of the pandemic, which is to say we're sol- like I personally am like taking on the responsibility for solving it uh, over and over again every time I get a booster. Well, um, I am I am like the booster person. Right. And I think actually that in that in that area is sort of in that range of like uh, possibilities. Right. And the idea of like the booster is another silver bullet or another answer to the continual question of when will the pandemic end? Like, I think that's where the capacity for harm emerges. Right. And, you know, it's kind of like a gray area to like walk around, you know, is there harm in vaccination? No, but vaccination does change um, people's social behaviors, just change the way that they um, perceive their own risk. And it changes the way that, you know, the government like communicates that risk to the public. So, you know, yeah, contextually, like if all were perfect in a perfect world, a booster would do no harm. But in a perfect world, like we wouldn't have vaccine inequity and the entire world would have had access to primary care since the year 2000. So, you know, it's like in the in the actual context, like in our actual material reality, right? There is, I think, great capacity for harm because the the conversation of boosters have has always been a conversation about is this, you know, this is our next goalpost. This is our easy out goalpost. Right. It was the vaccine. It's now boosters. You know, we we had banging on pops, pots and pans was our goalpost until the vaccine became the goalpost. Then the vaccine rollout kind of did not hit where it was promised to hit. And now the booster is the goalpost. And it really makes you sort of, I think, when you look at it from that perspective, right? You know, the the harm does become evident. The capacity for harm becomes evident because it's ultimately, you know, what this is rhetorically used as this conversation, right, is just once again a conversation about justifying the, the only thing that the Biden administration has really been consistent on this entire time, which is its absolute abject refusal to do anything to mitigate community spread, right? Well, yeah, and it's active... Uh, push to make the pandemic a matter of personal responsibility, which is the same, you know, again, very in line with how the Trump administration fucking handled things just in a very like with slightly different affect to how they dealt with it. But like same message, ultimately, just different Um, set dressing. And, you know, to like to quote um, again, friend of the show, Abdullah Shihapar, um, who had a great piece in The Nation this Mm -hmm. this week. um, We cannot exit this pandemic individually right <laughs> and i think this is re- what's really important so like the, the like this is why some of the you know we have to like we have to learn to live with the virus um stuff i mean drives me up a wall frankly just because the to and and that's and i'm relating this because i think that in in uh, in no small way the message around the boosters like whether i'm sure it to me because like whatever scientifically it makes sense that at some point like especially with high continual transmission at some point people will probably need boosters that, that's fine i'm not you know yeah. i'm not contesting that at all what i what i am contesting is that the whole line around the booster conversation coming especially from the administration um and from a lot of people who are like very ideologically aligned with them is essentially that like okay well this is what will allow us to as you guys are saying continue to keep this as a measure of uh, personal responsibility, keep this as a measure of individual risk, individual ability to, uh, you know, take the measures to protect yourself by going out and like securing the booster and, and getting it or whatever. And if you listen to like 
I'll be here. Let me let me just pull back the curtain really quick. Um, you guys and you you two might think this is kind of funny. Uh, so this morning, as research to see if it was good enough, even to even if to dunk on. <laughs> I did myself the profound disservice of listening to the entirety of a Barry Weiss podcast episode featuring Vinay Prasad. Okay. And I mean, I knew you were a ma- I mean, I, I knew f- you were a masochist, but I didn't know you were like pinhead. You know, hey, I didn't know you were like I didn't know you were like Hellraiser guy. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll I mean, tear I'm, your soul apart. I have, I have a yeah, I have a, a profound pain threshold. I guess I'll say, and it was okay. It was terrible, but what is just maddening and but also fascinating about the whole thing is, you know, I, I mean, I, I've heard a million different versions of this before. I was not surprised. The reason that we're not like playing clips from it and talking about it or something like that is because it was a frankly inc- incredibly unremarkable conversation. And basically what I did find very interesting was that in, again, very obvious ways, they even as they're sort of like talking about, oh, like whatever the pandemic is a is a social construction, we have to sort of like understand our uh, relationship to the virus as just that, like a relationality or something. I'm I w- I'm adding fancier words than they actually use, mm-hmm. but basically, like you know, what is what is the prime concern that these people actually have, right? What is the prime concern of so many of these people who just want to fucking go back to their regular lives, right? Is well, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Right. Is just like, well, everything, everything suggests that like my personal behavior does not affect this. Like, that's why, again, I'm saying it was unremarkable. It was just like all this Emily Oster stuff that we've talked about, all the other like so many things, even coming from the Biden administration. Basic is basically like oh, public health. No, that's not really a thing. <laughs> public health is like is like a, it may be a useful concept or something. But in, in terms of like our actual health or how to actually think about or, or quote unquote live with the virus, it's like. You're, you know, you get vaccinated, your risk, like whatever, there might be some risk, but your risk is like effectively zero. You're fine. And this attitude is not like this attitude is not going to stop anything. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that, and that's why I bring up the like what Abdullah said, which is like we can't exit. We cannot exit the pandemic individually. Like this is a collective responsibility and we are just doing every last we are just doing and have done every last fucking thing wrong yeah well, wait, well if you set yourself up to if if the problem is one of public health as opposed to like individual uh, responsibility then you then like it puts you in the situation where you have to acknowledge that you don't really have institutions that support public health which you have as institutions that are uh support maybe individual medicine and they're not really available to everybody and like the, the you like the, the everything unwinds it's a far easier thing politically and you know apparently this is the more disturbing thing to me is not what biden's doing it's not what these just you know, ghouls who have uh, <laughs> these sinisures like podcasts and wherever Vinay Prasad's grant funding comes from, you know, th- these people out there doing this thing like that, that that's all seems to me par for the course. It's the fact that there's not that they don't that there's no that there's no punishment for it. There's no there's no p- punishing recoil for any of these things um they're like they're going on and they're like reasonably predicting like nothing bad is gonna happen to us professionally politically for just 
you know, kicking this off of our plate and reinforcing what people already believe. And I just, it's, it illustrates, I don't know, to me, just how far we are from any sort of broader conceptual change in the way that people think about solidarity and like in, in, and in the mechanisms people have to actually refuse. I'm, I'm far more encouraged when I see, you know, workers, you know, going off, like going off the job, essentially wildcat striking or just quitting on yeah. mass like that, that is using the power you have to hold people accountable at this level. It's just like, I don't, I, I get, um, it, it feels very bleak if you think about it only at this level rather than thinking about what people are doing to refuse um, to accept this reality. I mean, I'm like seeing professors at the University of Georgia and like academic staff at UGA saying like, no, we're we're not going to teach in classrooms that where students aren't masked like the, this is fucking insane like that that at the very least is like more comforting to me than anything else. Yeah. I, I mean, I think part of what's really, you know, the underlying problem here is that we've had this dominant culture for a very long time that has fueled the entire rise and framework of multiple multi-billion global industries, right, of health and healthcare that are centered around this fetishized notion of individual health. And that has been the way that we allocate resources spatially and financially this is this has been the underlying justification for eugenics and eugenic policies as they've developed right the notion of individual health has always been a means of undermining solidarity and it is something that you see you know i think weaponized in culture in any moment when there is a decision made to impose artificial scarcity of resources on the population because there is a decision made about, you know, what the value of the reproduction of society is over, you know, the sustenance of the population itself. And these sort of decisions, like, they only get made or they only happen, I think, because there are all of these barriers to solidarity that are like just ingrained in the ways that like we engage with our own understanding of our health. Right. So one of the things that's very frustrating to me about the booster conversation is it kind of for people that don't totally know a lot about the immune system. Right. It kind of fucks with your idea of what the immune system is because it keeps being talked about as if, you know, you have no more antibodies anymore. So you need a booster to put more back in but that's not you gotta top up a battery or right that is that let me tell you that is not how this shit works okay at all the immune system is a constantly changing it is never static it you know what your antibody levels are do not reflect your actual immunity you know just because the virus evolves into variants doesn't mean that your own antibodies aren't evolving and doing their own shit right like your body and the way that your your sort of immune defense works, right, is not static. But the conversation around, you know, the boosters is very static. It's like as if you are a player in a video game and it's a bar that's run low and yeah, the booster is absolutely. an item you have to capture. You, you have to like collect. Or whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's like and that's that is part of the cult and the fetish of like individual health. And that like ultimately like that mentality and that approach 
one has very little to do with actually how the body like deals with disease, but two, like I think fundamentally, you know, categorically undermines thinking solidaristically and thinking at the scale that like public health actually requires us to think at. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, I think you see, I think one just to, I don't know, maybe just round it out. I guess one really prominent place that you see that is just in, I mean, think about just very simple, uh, not even interactions think about very simple things that people just repeat right i mean actually you know not to not to go too further on on this like horrible painful conversation that i listened through uh this morning but like when you think when you're thinking about your health on just simply an individual level and when you're thinking about something like um immunity as like this like shield right as this like impenetrable fucking bubble um because it, it seems like for the most part we kind of can't like I don't know, like, despite the fact that I thought that a lot of people were going to kind of like learn about immune systems and public health and health and things like that, uh, because as a result of this pandemic, I think a year and a half on now, I can really confidently say that people have learned shit, that people have like absolutely <laughs> social, social reproduction about what these things are constitute and, and mean and what they mean for like collectivity and solidarity and the potentials there have just not happened, which is one of the reasons that I think we do our project in general, but like, simple stuff like for example i've been vaccinated okay like that means that i can go out to fucking dine in and eat again or whatever and like people like in this inter- in this interview for example barry and and vanai like joke about how like barry goes out to a, a restaurant and like the wait staff are wearing masks it's very it has echoes of like equal the thing participation we, under capitalism well it has echoes of the thing that we <laughs> talked about uh Right when the CDC dropped in May, the the masking uh, recommendation, which is we made fun of Yasha Monk for he wrote this whole fucking bloviating piece about how he went to a restaurant and he was like explaining condescendingly to this waitress who, quote unquote, looked like she read all the right magazines that, in (laughs) fact, it was his right or whatever to go in there without a mask. And it's just, you know, the reason like it's. Like even this far on the basic solidarity of like a mask is not necessarily worn for you. It is worn for others. It is worn for like all of us collectively. Right. Has just like not happened. And I don't think like no one, everyone acts like, oh, when you, when you make these proclamations that like people want uh, everyone to be like, people want everyone to be wearing masks forever. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone fucking wants that. Right. We don't want people to like all be wearing masks forever. But I mean, I don't know. There's a reason that outside of the United States, there's a very common practice in a lot of countries for when people are sick to for them to wear masks when they're out and about sick with anything. Right. Right. So, you know. Right. No. And I I mean, it's I think, you know, one I one thing that I remember so clearly, actually, from the beginning of the pandemic when we were talking about in those early episodes trying to understand what COVID was and we were sort of talking through, you know, how does the immune system work and how could it be that this inflammatory response is like actually maybe sometimes more dangerous than the viral infection itself? Because if you recall, you know, like a year ago, year and a half ago, that was like a serious like concept to grapple with. And 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 one thing we talked about then and we used um, we used my disease actually as the sort of metaphorical like framework for explaining this is that, you know, what autoimmune disease 
uh, patients can teach us is that the immune system only needs like one small, tiny thing to fail or go wrong for there to be sort of total system catastrophe that like autoimmune diseases are these sort of mundane and unremarkable differences in quote unquote immunocompetence, right? Uh, that result in these sort of systemic effects. And we talked about that in terms of like trying to understand how not just disease moves through the body, but how, you know, disease is relational and social and impacted by like our physical proximity in relations to each other. And I mean, I think often in in the position we all find ourselves in, it can feel so alienating and like crushing. I just I'm just thinking back to what you were saying earlier, Phil, about solidarity, like where you find hope in thinking about people walking out on the job or whatever. But, you know, it, it can feel like we're all individually just shouting into the void or that any of this dissent like is meaningless because it is too small to count or matter. But just keep in mind how fucking tricky the body is and diseases. And you really, you know, it's like it fucking matters to like register your frustration and rage, even if it feels like you're shouting into the void, you know, because it fucking matters to say like what's actually happening and to like be a record of that because it's, Part of the game of hegemony is to say, like, unless you're big enough, like, sit down because you have nothing to say. And that's not true. Right. And like what we talk about every week is how, like, the big people are actually really saying nothing. And like, you know, I think now, like, we're looking at, at, at I think, a couple of months that are going to be really difficult. And I really don't want people to feel like absolute despair because the only thing that's going to get us through this is like rage and venting and communicating and building relationships with each other around our frustration and our our absolute disgust at what we're seeing all around us yeah because that's the only way forward you know resisting the individual cult of health towards like a bigger more solidaristic more you know Uh, economically efficient probably at the end of the day (laughs) more like you know communal idea of health that actually reflects how disease moves through the population so we can you know try and tackle it at that level but we're never going to get there if we don't start thinking about these things now like we can't hold ourselves back waiting for the finished final answer or everything to be perfect and correct like it's all about just talking it through and and having that like other idea about how things could have gone or how things do work. You know, it, it fucking matters. So, yeah, that's my pep talk, I guess. And maybe that's a good place to leave it for today. If you want to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. Our episode from earlier this week was really great. It's a deep dive on chemical incarceration in nursing homes and Mm -hmm. um, highly recommend. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends. You can post about your favorite episodes or you can follow us at death panel underscore. And uh, as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
When I go into a restaurant, okay, I am able to sit there without my mask on and eat and drink wine and the rest of it. And I am being waited on by people wearing masks and often still wearing gloves, which I find astonishing. Do you think that that is going to become our new normal? And I'd love to just hear about your personal experience with what feels increasingly to me like an almost two-tiered America 